0: We're going to read uh, Job 39 and into the first few verses of chapter 40, the first five verses of chapter 40. Do you know when the wild mountain goats bear young, or can you mark when the deer gives birth? Can you number the months that they fulfill, or do you know the time when they bear young? They bow down, they bring forth their young, they deliver their offspring. The young ones are healthy, they grow strong with grain, they depart and do not return to them. Who set the wild donkey free? Who loosed the bonds of the onager? Whose home I have made the wilderness and the barren land his dwelling? He scorns the tumult of the city, he does not heed the shouts of the driver. The range of the mountains is his pasture and he searches after every green thing. Will the wild ox be willing to serve you? Will he bed by your manger? Can you bind the wild ox in the furrow with ropes or will he plow the valleys behind you? Will you trust him because his strength is great, or will you leave your labor to him? Will you trust him to bring home your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but her wings are and but are her wings and pinions like the kindly storks? For she leaves her eggs on the ground and warms them in the dust. She forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may break them. She treats her young harshly as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain without concern. Because God deprived her of wisdom and did not endow her with understanding. When she lifts herself on high, she scorns the horse and its rider. Have you given the horse strength? Have you clothed his neck with thunder? Can you frighten him like a locust? His majestic snorting strikes terror. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He gallops into the clash of arms. He mocks at fear and is not frightened, nor does he turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him the glittering spear and javelin. He devours the distance with fierceness and rage nor does he come to a halt because the trumpet has sounded. At the blast of the trumpet he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and shouting. Does the hawk fly by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle mount up at your command and make its nest on high? On the rock it dwells and resides, on the crag of the rock and the stronghold. From there it spies out the prey, Its eyes observe from afar. Its young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there it is. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken. But I will not answer yes twice, but I will proceed no further. Let's ask for God's blessing on our study. Almighty God and Father, you have revealed yourself in the creation as very powerful, beyond the strength of men, beyond the comprehension of our minds, uh, majestic in your glory, exceedingly great in all that you do. And worthy of our honor and praise, grant that we may also fear you and learn wisdom. Grant that we may lay our hands on our mouths, rather than charge you with wrong, as Job did. Help us this evening to understand your word and your greatness. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So in chapters 38 to 41, we have Job's, our God's answer to Job, and this answer to Job has two parts. Chapters 38 and 39, with those first few verses of chapter 41, which show us Job's response to God's speech to him, and then in chapters. Uh, 40 and 41 where God resumes his uh, words to Job after Job has responded and Job's response again at the beginning of chapter 42. In uh, these chapters all four of the chapters in fact that are about the speech of God, God really continues the theme that Elihu began in chapter 37 when he said to Job, especially in verses 14 and following, Listen to this, O Job, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know when God dispatches them and causes the light of his cloud to shine? Do you know how the clouds are balanced? Those wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge. And God here in chapters 38 to 40 takes that same theme of the creation, and various parts of that creation, and he asked Job very similar questions. Do you know Job? Or can you do, Job, what I have done? And what uh, can you tell me about these works of mine? Now, uh, we have at the beginning of chapter 38... A couple of introductory verses in which uh, we can note, I think, three things. First, that we have again here the name the Lord, or Yahweh. And this is very uh, unusual in the book of Job. The name Yahweh appears in chapters 1 and 2, and it appears especially again in chapter 42, But for the most part, throughout the book of Job, you find the name God or the name the Almighty, rather than the name Yahweh. The second thing we should notice about this is that God revealed himself to Job in the whirlwind. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, or perhaps better, the tempest. This is actually often a way in the Old Testament that God revealed himself. I want to refer to a few passages in this regard. You can uh, think, for example, of Elijah being caught up to heaven in the whirlwind. The same word is used there in 2 Kings chapter 2. You can think of that great storm on the sea when Jonah was trying to flee from God. And uh, the same word is used there. But also in Psalm 107, for example, you find this same word, Psalm 107, verses 25 and following. Let's turn there for a minute and look at those verses, or at least a couple of those verses, because they are also verses that in which we see the power of God. 107, verse 25. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul, that is the soul of the sailors, melts because of trouble They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. This is the kind of great storm that is being talked about here. You see this kind of storm also in um, prophecies of God's judgment. Isaiah 29 verse 6 is one example. You will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. Or in Jeremiah 23, verse 19. Jeremiah 23, verse 19. It's again a prophecy of judgment that we have there in that verse. Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord has gone forth in fury, a violent whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. And finally, in Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 4 we find a great tempest in connection with God's revelation of his glory. It's just simply there a revelation of his glory. Then I looked and behold a whirlwind was coming out of the north a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself and brightness was all around it and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. So here you have this great tempest that reveals the glory and majesty of God. So, in this whirlwind, God is on the one hand He uh, not revealing His essential being to Job. He, no man can see God and live. No man is able to bear that great glory of God by himself. But God nevertheless manifests Himself in these great storms and other. Events on the earth, especially here in the whirlwind. He's showing to Job his great power while he remains unseen and incomprehensible to man. The third thing then that we note about these first few verses is that the Lord challenges Job in verses 2 and 3. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now Prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Note that question first of all. Who is this? That is a devastating question in itself and in a sense I think this is the question that governs all of God's speech from the beginning of chapter 38 all the way through chapter 41. He's really asking Job who are you? This question Who is this with which God begins his speech? In order to get the tenor of that question, I think we can think a little bit in terms of of a man who has no standing, no significance, just an ordinary man uh, who comes completely uninvited into the throne room of the king, and who there in the throne room of the king Uh, does not wait for the king to speak first to him, but opens his mouth and begins to talk and even to accuse the king. And the king's first response to such an interruption, of course, would be, Who is this? What kind of status does this person have to come here and begin to question me in this manner? What kind of right does this person have what kind of person is he? Does he have the kind of authority, the kind of power that um, one would expect from a man who challenges the king? Has he been sent by another? Does he have any kind of credentials to speak? and if he does have credentials, what does he know, and how wise is he? can he does he have sufficient understanding to to shed some light on whatever questions he's interested in talking about? What is he able to do if he has come to complain of me? What is he able to do to make corrections to this? This is all the thrust of God's questions to Job. What kind of status does this man have? What right does he have to be here? What does he know? How wise is he? What is he able to do? That's the thrust of this question of God about Job. And the answer, of course, is he has no standing, he has no right, he has no wisdom, he has no power to do anything that God does. Who is this? It's a question designed to humble Job, to humble Job's pride, to put Job back in his place. And this is really the uh, thrust, then, of all four of these chapters in which God speaks. Who is this? But he also accuses Job, then, of darkening counsel by words without knowledge. That is, Job's words have shed no light on the problem that Job has been discussing. Job and his friends have been discussing. Job's words have given no trustworthy guidance To guide a man through these problems, Job's words have only served to obscure the main question. And then in the third place, he uh, invites Job to prepare himself for contention with him. Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer and then the word that he uses for man there is the word that means man in his strength, and that is very often translated as warrior or mighty man. Now prepare yourself like a warrior, gird up your loins, be, be ready to contend with me. You've wanted to contend with me, now prepare yourself to do exactly that. But before you say anything, you've had your chance to speak, first i have some questions for you and when i have finished questioning then you may answer me and then the questions begin and there are a multitude of questions here in these two chapters i don't count i didn't count them up but i would imagine there are 30 or 40 questions that God has for Job here in these uh, two chapters. And they are, as we've already suggested, devastating questions for Job. Questions whose thrust is all, what do you know and what can you do? Now I think we can divide God's, this first part of the speech itself into two parts. In verses 4 to 38 of chapter 38, God speaks to Job about the inanimate creation. And then in verse 39 throughout chapter 39, verse 39 of chapter 38, throughout 39, he speaks to Job about the animate creation, especially about various animals within his creation. And as we're looking through the various questions that God asks Job here, uh, we should notice, I think, at the same time, the metaphors, the very um, beautiful and brilliant metaphors that God uses in his descriptions of his work in his creation. So he first asks Job in verses 4 to 7, where were you? when I laid the foundations of the earth. And here in his questioning Job about his presence at the beginning of the creation, he uses the metaphor of building. God constructed the creation in a way similar to the way a man constructs a house. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who determined its measurements? Who stretched out the line, the measuring line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? And who laid its cornerstone? So God is here uh, addressing Job in terms that Job understands, but he's saying, I constructed the creation as simply and easily as a man constructs a house. And where were you when I did it? In verses 8 to 11, then, he talks about his work of confining the seas within the boundaries that he prepared for the seas. And he uh, uses, again, two figures here. First of all, his creation of the seas was like the bringing forth of a child. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? So the sea came forth from the womb, and then God put doors upon it. That's the second figure. He put doors upon the sea so that the sea could not overflow the boundaries that he had set. And he talks then about how he made the clouds and the thick darkness its garment, so the sea is still a child here. He, he clothed the sea with the clouds. He made the thick darkness like a swaddling band. He fixed his limit for it and set bars and doors. When And then he said, this far you may come, but no farther. And here your proud waves must stop. So his control, then, his creation and control of the seas, the mighty sees. In verses 12 to 15 he talks about the morning. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. We're going to come back to verse 13 in a little bit. It takes on form like clay under a seal and stands out like a garment. I think uh, uh, some commentators anyway take this to mean that in the darkness we don't see shapes of things well at all. But as the light begins to dawn, things take on their shape and begin to stand out for our eyes to see. And God's question to Job is, did you command the morning? Do you make the dawn come forth from its place? In verses 16 to 18, or 16 to 17 rather, he asks Job, have you explored the depths and the regions beyond the gates of death? And here we have again that picture we've seen before of Sheol lying at the bottom of the sea. And God asks Job, have you gone to the bottom of the sea? And even have you gone through the gates of Sheol, the gates of death that lie there at the bottom of the sea, and have you explored down there in those depths? Can you tell me what you found there, if you have explored? Where's the way to the dwelling? Uh, Excuse me. Have you entered the springs of the sea, or have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? In verse 18, it's about the breadth of the earth. Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. In verses 19 to 21, it's about the light and the darkness. And the metaphor here is a personification in which the light and the darkness are like people And at the end of their terms of service, they have to be led back to their houses. And it's as if God says to Job, Can you take the light by its hand at the end of the day and bring it to the house where it dwells? Or can you take the night by the hand when its time is over and bring it to the house where it dwells? Where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place that you may take it to its territory? that you may know the paths to its home. Do you know it because you were born then, or because the number of your days is great? So what can you tell me, he says to Job, about the light and the darkness? In verses 22 to 30, it's about the weather. And here I think there are three different aspects of the weather that God looks at. First we have in uh, the first couple of verses about the snow and the hail. And he uh, basically says of this uh, that he has he uses the snow and the hail as weapons. but he stores them up until he has need of them. He stores them up in his treasury, in his arsenal, as you will. and he takes them out at the time, that he needs them have you entered the treasury of snow or have you seen the treasury of hail which i have reserved for the time of trouble for the day of battle and war but by what way is light diffused or the east wind scattered over the earth that's another part of the letter of the uh, weather then in verse 25 He talks about the rain, 25 and 26 and 27 and 28 as well. And here, again, he uses a a very interesting figure. He says he has prepared a channel for the overflowing water and a path for the thunderbolt. And the suggestion here is that the rain and the thunder don't just fall lightly, or randomly on the earth, but that God provides a channel for the rain to uh, flow down so that it comes to the earth exactly where he wants it. And he provides a path for the thunderbolt to follow so that it comes to the earth where he wants it. And then again in verses 28 to thirty. About the ice and the frost, and he goes back again here to the uh, idea of birth. Has the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice and the frost of heaven? Who gives it birth? The waters hardened like stone, and the surface of the deep is frozen. And then. In verses 31 to 33, he asks Job to look up at the stars. Pleiades and Orion and Mazaroth and the great bear with its cubs. But here he uses the metaphor of a chain that controls the stars, that, as it were, keeps the, the stars in their places, So that the Pleiades do not wander away from each other and the constellation be lost? Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades? Can you loose the belt of Orion, that belt that holds the constellation Orion together? Can you bring out Maseroth in its season? Or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? That is, do you have control of the stars? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you set their dominion over the earth? (coughs) There have been some commentators who have suggested that in that last part of verse 33 is a reference to uh, astrology and to the idea, of course, that the stars therefore control somewhat the destinies of men. But I think it's more likely, much more likely, that this is a reference to Genesis chapter 1 when God created the lights and he said about those lights, the greater light, the sun was to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good. So this giving of light for various reasons to govern the, uh, the day and the night and to govern various aspects of the earthly creation. Can you set their dominion, he asked Job, over the earth? And then finally, can you call the storm into being? Verses 34 to 38. And again, he uses a very... Uh, Striking metaphor, the the storm, the rain is confined, as it were, in a wineskin. And he says to Job, can you open up that wineskin so that the rain will pour out on the earth? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can pour out the bottles of heaven when the dust hardens in clumps and the clods cling together? He takes Job to all these different parts of his creation, and he says to Job, what do you know about them? What can you do in these different areas of the creation? If you can claim some power over them, if you can claim to know something about these, then maybe you have some standing to come and dispute with me about my ways But there's another aspect of this part of chapter 38 that I think we should not ignore. Christopher Ash points it out in his commentary. That is that there are some hints along the way here about good and evil, about, about trouble as well. So, for example, in verse 7, he asks Job about the morning stars and the sons of God and they're shouting for joy at the time that he created the heavens and the earth they saw the the goodness and the power of God's creation and they rejoiced over that creation and part of God's question to Job is were you present then? Can you explain that to me? Do you understand this rejoicing of the angels? Um, in then in verse 12 and following about the dawn, we have that verse 13, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. And again in verse 15, from the wicked their light is withheld and the upraised arm is broken. Especially that first uh, idea there is, is very striking again. He he talks about the dawn as if it's a person and as if the earth is like a rug and dawn seizes, or not the earth, the darkness is like a rug and and the dawn seizes the corners of that rug and shakes it and shakes the wicked out. The wicked hate the light, that they love the darkness and the dawn comes and drives them away and thus withholds light from them and their upraised arm is broken then, of course, in verse 17, we have that reference to death. Death was not part of the original creation. God is including in his um, asking Job to look at the creation, not just the creation that was originally, but at the creation as it came under the curse of God after man's fall and God's work in all this matter of the curse as well as his work in the creation Verse 23 mentions trouble and battle and war, part of the fallen creation also. And in verses 26 and 27, we should, uh, I think, are intended to ask the question, why does God cause it to rain where he does? Notice verse 26, he causes it to rain on a land where there is no one, a wilderness in which there is no man to satisfy the desolate waste and cause to spring forth the growth of tender grass. Why would he cause the rain to fall in such places? Is not the rain for the benefit of man and animal, and yet he causes it to fall in the desolate wastes. What's his purpose behind that? And so I think as we go through this you see this undercurrent throughout this chapter especially not so much perhaps in the next chapter but especially in this chapter and then we begin to ask questions well when he talks about the seas being confined and when he says that he stops the proud waves of the sea are we supposed to perhaps understand that he's also hinting at God's sovereignty over the rebellious nations? Those C's are a symbol in the scriptures quite often of the rebellion of the nations against God. Is he suggesting here then God's control of the wicked, God's governance of the rebellious nations? When we read about the dawn shaking the wicked out of the earth, is he hinting at the dawning of the new day and the day spring from on high? When he talks about Sheol, it's certainly behind that is the idea that God is the judge who sends some there into Sheol. And God has these treasuries of hail and snow that he reserves as weapons against his enemies. So so God is acknowledging the presence of, of evil and trouble in his universe, and he's saying to Job, I govern these things too. And these are the kinds of things you've been talking about with your friends. Well, explain to me, if you will, the relationship of these things to the creation explain to me if you will my governance of these things and my purposes in these things so the questions for job are about also about his knowledge of and his control over wickedness and over troubles were you present at the creation did you understand the joy of the angels then have you exercised control over the floods of ungodliness are you the one who shakes the wicked out of the earth, and breaks their arm? Do you know Sheol and the ways of God in it? If you can answer these questions, Job, then you may come and contend with me. Let's turn then to the end of chapter 38 and all of chapter 39 And in these parts of God's speech, he talks about various animals. And again, it's it's very beautiful poetry that we have here. It's uh, very varied. As he talks about these different animals, he talks about different parts of the lives of each of them. Something different about each one. So in... Verses 39 to 41 of chapter 38, he talks about the lions and the ravens and about providing food for them. In chapter 39, verses 1 to 4, he talks about the mountain goats and the deer and about their times of giving birth. In chapter uh, 39, verses 5 to 8, he talks about the wild donkey and the onager and their uh despising of the city, the scorning of the tumult of the city, and their freedom from the control of men. In verses 9 to 12 about the wild ox and the great strength of the wild ox and how man cannot uh, use that great strength and bend that great strength to his own Uh, purposes, can you bind the wild ox in the furrow with ropes or will he plow the valleys behind you? In verses 13 to 18 he talks about the ostrich and two things especially come out about the ostrich, first of all her speed at the beginning and end of those verses and then in the rest of the verses about her her stupidity, very striking there. She treats her young harshly as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain without concern because God deprived her of wisdom and did not endow her with understanding. God made a stupid bird. Can you understand why he has done that? Can you explain this? In verses 19 to 25, it's about the war horse and the fierceness and eagerness of the the horse for battle. He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of captains, and shouting, at this blast of the trumpet, he says, Aha! And in verses 26 to 30, about the hawk and the eagle, about how high in the sky they fly, and how high in the cliffs and crags of the rock they make their nests, about the piercing character of their eyesight and the food that their eyes spot and the carrion that they bring back to their nests. And all these questions that God asks Job then about these various animals in the creation point to Job's inability in these matters as well. Can you provide food for the animals? What do you know about the mountain goats and the deer giving birth? Who made the wild donkey free? Can you make the wild ox serve you? Look at the ostrich. There's no question there, but perhaps the question that's implied is, do you know why God made her so stupid? Have you given the horse its strength? Do the hawk and the eagle fly by your wisdom? See how he keeps on bringing to Job his own lack of knowledge and his own lack of power. In comparison to God. Notice that he also takes Job out of his own sphere, the sphere of the part of the creation which man has domesticated. All these animals here are wild animals except the war horse, and you could almost say of the war horse that it too is a wild animals, animal. He takes Job then not into that sphere of the creation where Job has some knowledge and some control, his own animals, his own fields, and so on, the donkeys and the cows and the sheep and the goats and so on. And He takes Job to the wild creation and he says, What do you know and how much power and control do you exercise here? There's an emphasis also on the young in this passage. In chapter 38, going back to the lions and the ravens, can you hunt, pray for the lion, or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? And verse 41, who provides food for the raven when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? And then in verse 3 of chapter 39, they bow down, they bring forth their young, they deliver their offspring, their young ones are healthy, they grow strong with grain, they depart and do not return to them. In verse 16, again, it's about the ostrich, she treats her young harshly. And in verse 30, about the uh, eagles and the hawks. Its young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there it is. See, there's this uh, recurring theme of the young here, and I think, again, God is saying to Job, "You, you think for a moment about your domestic animals, you exercise some oversight over them, you provide for them, you take care of the young, you help the parents at a minimum, you help the parents with the care of those young, and so on. But, but consider now the, the uh, wild creation. How much do you have control there? And what do you know about all of that? What kind of wisdom can you apply to the wild animals in this area? And yet these animals bring forth their young. They care for them. They provide for them. The young ones grow up strong and healthy and, and free. Without any help from you, he's again putting Job in his place. And then there's also, again, you see that emphasis on violence, the prey that the lions and the ravens and the hawks and the eagles seek, the wars that the horses fight in, and so on. And all of this under the sovereign control of God, and all of this beyond the knowledge, wisdom, and power of Job. And so God concludes this part of his speech by saying to Job, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. So in all of this first part of his speech to Job, God has not not brought any accusations against Job. His friends had accused Job of sin and had tried to explain Job's affliction by saying, it must be that you sinned. God makes no such accusations against Job. But he also does not declare Job innocent. He does not say to Job, I know that you did not sin, and I brought affliction on you in spite of the fact that you had not sinned. He doesn't declare Job innocent. He ignores that question altogether. That whole dispute between Job and his friends becomes irrelevant to God. God has nothing to say about it. He doesn't come to Job now and at the end of this whole period of great affliction in Job's life reveal to him the circumstances which began Job's story, Satan's accusation and God's permitting him to afflict Job in the way he had. He does not answer Job's the content of Job's speeches in particular. He does not explain to Job all that Job had all the points that Job had raised that he wanted God to explain to him. He only makes the point that it lies beyond man's power and man's authority and man's wisdom to correct or rebuke God. Shall one who contends with the Almighty, correct him. He who rebukes God, let him answer it. In the New Bible Commentary, which is not very new anymore, as you can see from the cover, Davidson says this about this part of God's speech. The word of God came and the strife of words was over. It did not come through a carefully reasoned argument, dealing a death blow to Job's intellectual difficulties by its inexorable logic. It did not come through a cut-and-dried explanation of the strands of suffering in Job's experience. There is silence on such issues, silence about the question of retribution, which had balked so largely in speech after speech, silence about the disciplinary aspect of suffering. The word came through a fresh vision of God, of the almighty, majestic God, behind the marvels of animate and inanimate nature, painstakingly attentive to the unexpected and the insignificant, towering above human might and wisdom. And then finally Job's answer, Behold, I am vile what shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Now, the first part of that answer, behold, I am vile, suggests that Job was making a confession of sin. But I think the English Standard Version's translation of that line is better, Behold, I am of small account. Behold, I am of small account. Job is making a confession not of sin, but of insignificance. He's saying what we say when we confess to God that we are dust. We are creatures, and he the great creator. We are infinitely beneath him in every possible way. And it is because of his insignificance, not because God has at this point persuaded him of sin, that Job then goes on to say, I have nothing more to answer you. I lay my hand over my mouth. I've spoken. I've even spoken twice. He's spoken more than twice, but I will proceed no further. He says, I have nothing more to say. I should not have said what I I did say. I see my folly now, but I will not say any more. And that, I think, is the lesson we should take away from this uh, whole passage. The proper posture of man before God is humility. I am of little account. It is fundamental to life into God's in God's world and to exercising our reason about God's ways to begin with the confession, I am of little account. If we do not humble ourselves before God, we can never hope for a proper way of life before him, or a proper understanding of his ways. If we exalt ourselves against God and say, as many today do, where is his justice? We are already transgressing against that position in which God created us. And he will say, who is this who darkens counsel?" without knowledge may God bless us with his word